Welcome to The End Game, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. And I'm pleased to welcome Jeanette Liardi to, as our podcast guest today. Jeanette is a social gerontologist, a community educator, a writer, editor, and public speaker. She has a passion for empowering older adults and finds personal fulfillment helping boomers and older generations identify and share their wisdom with others in classes and presentations on journaling, memoir writing, and others. Thanks for joining us, Jeanette. Thank you for having me, Don. I, I want to find out, first of all, what is a social gerontologist? And I'm guessing that this is not like the activity director at, a, at an old folks home. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. It's not. Um, first of all, gerontology is basically the study of aging uh, throughout all phases of the life course. And there are different subspecialties of gerontology. So you have environmental gerontology, which studies the environment's effects on aging, like aging in place or therapeutic gardening, that kind of thing. You have Jewish prudential gerontology, which studies elder law, elder abuse, and life planning, end of life planning. You have biogerontology, which is the biological basis of aging and age-related diseases. And then you have social gerontology, which is what I do. And I study the social aspects of aging, the effects of social structures and policies on the quality of life of older adults, how people relate to one another in terms of aging, and how uh, people as individuals, groups, and cultures relate to the concept of aging. And what does that mean day to day? Day to day, well, you know, the biggest thing that uh, that affects us is our sense, our perceptions of aging. And so ageism day to day affects every single aspect of an older adult's life. If you talk about housing or transportation or um, uh, education or work, the workplace, ageism is everywhere. And that's what we really have to be dealing with. So let's let's get down to that a little bit. What are some of the perceptions that of aging that you think need to be changed? Well, I will start with the absolute biggest myth about aging, and that is that aging leads to nothing but deterioration and decline, that that's all there is, that after a certain midlife point, we start going downhill. We're in a very youth-centric society, so everything that's new and improved is, is superior to anything that's old and traditional and tried and true. So the biggest myth is that there's nothing to be gained past a certain uh, point in one's life. And that is so false. There are certain ways in which our brains change as we get older that we actually improve. Um, now, we, we may lose certain qualities, certain uh, aspects of our brains in terms of um, uh, speed of processing. We may not react as quickly. We may not be as good at multitasking. <clears throat> Those are the benefits of the younger brain. But as we get older, we actually get better at problem solving from different perspectives. And it's only because our brain has grown to a point where we can use both sides of our brain simultaneously better than we did when we were younger. So we, uh-huh. we see the more subtle issues around a particular problem. Younger people can get to ideas faster, but their ideas may be more black and white. We tend to see the grayness of life, the, the, the subtleties, the what ifs. So what if this could happen? What if, have you thought about this happening? That's why older brains can be very valuable 
in the workplace. You need younger and older brains together in the workplace to be the best, most productive teams. So that's the biggest myth is that we just fall apart and we don't just fall apart. We get much better in certain ways. That's, that's the main, the biggest myth. Um, <clears throat> another big myth is that all older adults are alike. As we get older, we, we're lumped together as the elderly. If you ever see these charts, lots of charts when they break down age groups, it's, you know, birth to 18 and then 19 to 34. The last age group always seems to be 65 plus, which is kind of crazy because when you think about the fact that many people are living into their 90s and even 100s, by the way, a baby born in the U.S. today has a 50% a chance of being a centenarian. That's how we have stretched longevity. Wow. So think about it, if we could live to be 100 years old, well, a 65-year-old and a 100-year-old, that's a 35-year difference. Just like a 25-year-old uh, and a, a 60-year-old is a 35-year difference. Will we lump 20-year-olds uh, and 60-year-olds together, 25-year-olds and 60-year-olds together? No. Well, why would we think of doing that with 65-year-olds and 100-year-olds? So that's the other thing. We become actually more different from one another the older we get because we have certain life experiences, which leads us to make certain choices, which leads us to other life experiences, so that the older we get, we, our life stories are so different from one another. And that's a very big myth, when we're all lumped together as the elderly. That's, that's absolutely wrong to do. Um, another myth is that uh, older adults don't like to change. You know, we're stuck in our ways, we can't uh, deal with technology, we can't learn new things. Well, when, when somebody says something like older adults don't like to change, when I give classes in ageism, I say, what was a telephone like when you were a kid? What's a telephone like now? If you could deal with a rotary phone and now you have a smartphone, you've changed. Think of all the changes you have gone through, all the iterations of cars and washing machines, and let alone the fact that our bodies are changing. We have to constantly readjust to different parts of our bodies feeling differently and, and acting differently. We are losing friends of our own age. That's a big life change for us. We lose partners, spouses. We are the master changers. We're not, not only are we not um, uh, have the inability to change, we are better at change than just about anybody else because we've had decades more experience. And as far as learning new things, we're older adults, uh, I have a couple of figures that I couldn't believe. Uh, I read this, the 2021 AARP survey said, 92% of people over the age of 50 prefer texting as their main form of communication, which I thought wow. surprised. 68% are on Facebook. 70% um, rely on technology to stay connected. And 70% made a tech purchase in 2021, meaning a smartphone or a computer or a laptop or something. So we we can learn new things if we are taught in ways that that will best meet the needs of our older brains because our older brains do change uh, depending on how in terms of how we learn if we're taught in certain ways we become as good as younger people in using technology we just need to be given the chance so that's just some of the many yeah. myths and and i'm i'm with you there all the way up until we get to the the remote that takes two remotes to change a station <laughs> That's, that's yeah, where you know, I get off. I, you know, and sometimes isn't the old way the best? Can't you just get up off the couch and turn your TV, change the channel on your TV? I, I don't think you can anymore, but, but oh, wouldn't well, it be nice? I, I, must, I must have an old set then because I could still do that. So, yeah, I agree. You, you also have talked about 
how ageist language seems to permeate our culture. Yeah. Um, can you yeah. give some examples of what, what sort of things you're talking about there? Sure. And, and first of all, <clears throat> when we when I say language, I use it as a broad term. It's not just the words we use. It's the pictures, the images we show to reflect older adults and the behaviors that we have um, toward older people. So, um, so before I get into specific examples, I just want to talk about why language matters. It matters because it can actually determine how we older adults can feel about ourselves. For decades, we've been getting images through the media about how wrinkles are bad, how gray hair is bad, how, um, again, our bodies are falling apart and all that. So what happens is many of us older adults can start to internalize the ageism and believe that we can't do things. We, we might... Um, assume what's called learned helplessness. If everybody feels that they need to do things for us because we can't do them ourselves, we begin to believe that we can't do them ourselves. So the words we hear to describe us or the ways people look at us or the ways people treat us can affect not only how we feel about ourselves, but it affects public policies. I'm thinking of early in the pandemic, Older adults, I mean, there was a lot of, there was talk in the media about how we are expendable. We should be willing to die so that younger people can live. Um, and so the, the language we use is really important. So uh, the just, two a, big, just a yeah. point there, you know, when you were talking about our culture, I wanted to add, and I think this oh. really brings it out. The other aspect of our culture besides new is better is we can throw away the old. Right. And, and that's, that's the way we've, we've created environmental disaster. And it's also the way that we treat people who are older, it seems. But absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, we are. We are expendable. We are discardable. We need to be put to the side. Um, a lot of that is also the result of the fear that people have of aging. When you are afraid to get older, then you do everything you can, not only to look not old, but you also don't want to associate with the old. Oh, I'm not there yet. So you can make fun of old people, lots of ageist jokes. If you listen to late night TV show hosts, their monologues are filled with ageist jokes. It's, it's kind of a self-defense of not, it's an us versus them. I'm the us, I'm not the them yet. But the ironic thing about aging is that we're all gonna be old. We are yeah. all aging. So we are all eventually gonna be the them. So we might as well understand what that's like. Um, so anyway, the two basic kinds of language that we use is something called other speak and elder speak. Other speak is how we talk about older adults and how we present perceptions of older adults. Elder speak is how we talk to and behave toward older adults. So I'll just give you a couple of examples of um, other speak, for example. There are words that, how do we talk about and perceive older adults? Well, there, there are words that are just so directly ageist, such as the phrase over the hill you know, over these, these over the hill birthday cards or the happy 40th birthday with the black balloon kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> talking about the problem of aging or calling somebody an old fogey or, uh, or saying that we're senile and cranky and grumpy. The senior moment, the concept of the senior moment, you know, uh, that we're, we have this temporary memory lapse. You know when senior moments start? In your late 20s. That's when we start to have these little memory slips where we can't remember somebody's name or we don't remember where we put the car keys. But as uh, uh, anti-ageism um, advocate Ashton Applewhite says, when she misplaced the car keys in high school, she didn't call it a junior moment. It's just a moment. We have these moments. So there's those direct words 
over the hill, that kind of thing. And then there are the implied other speak words that the words themselves are neutral, but we put a negative connotation to them. So for example, senior, the word senior, a lot of baby boomers don't like the phrase senior center because it conjures up the image of the old doddering cranky uh, person. <clears throat> and you know, here's something I would like to do. I'd like to reclaim some of these words that originally were neutral. Um, when you're a senior in high school or college, isn't that the coolest thing to be? If you're a senior vice president of a company, you're above the other vice presidents. So what if we start to consider ourselves senior vice presidents of life? We've gotten to a certain point where we have accumulated experience and knowledge and hopefully wisdom, the ability to apply that knowledge in, in productive ways. So why don't we reclaim the word senior and say, yeah, I'm a senior and I'm proud of that. So that's other speak. And while we're at it, I'd like to reclaim geezer. That's my, that's, that's my term of art, because uh, I think being a joyful geezer is a good thing. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that I'm in Portland, Oregon, and there's an art gallery called the Geezer Gallery mm. that, has, that uh, shows the work of artists of 60 years old and older. And so what they've done is taken that word with a sense of humor to say, hey, yeah, we're geezers, and look at the art we're producing. You know, right. this is pretty, pretty amazing art. Exactly. So that could be a way. That could be a way of, of doing it, too. Um, so that's just examples of other speak, but elder speak can be really also extremely debilitating toward uh, older adults. What I mean by elder speak is when people talk to us as if we're infants, they mm. speak in a high-pitched sing-songy voice, so they call us sweetie or honey or dearie. You know, they assume familiarity with us, whether we want that familiarity or not. Um, or they speak too slowly or loudly without a cause, that they assume that we are cognitively impaired or we're deaf. Without, without any cue, like the older adult saying, could you speak a little loudly? I have a problem with my hearing. If, that, if an older adult doesn't say that, don't assume it. You know, So that's part of elder speak. Also, um, marginalizing. For example, when uh, if an older person goes to the doctor's office with an adult child and the doctor speaks to the adult child, but not to the older person. Right. Marginalizing. I, I hear that happens quite a bit. It does happen uh, quite a bit. So those are just some examples of elder speak. So we've got this language and behavior problem. I recently wrote an article uh, um, talking about the kinds of art pictures, photographs that are shown for uh, articles talking about older adults, and they show pictures of wrinkly hands. That's all you see in the article is a wrinkly hands. And I say, are we more than just hands? Are we? What are those hands doing? Are they doing anything? Are they holding a computer? Are they looking through, uh, holding a microscope, or are we just kind of with our hands folded, wrinkly? That kind of perception of that's the only way to describe older people. That's wrong. We need to be changing that. I notice your your uh, attraction to the language. And I get the sense that this was uh, connected to your earlier career in some way. You, yeah. were, uh, you were an English major or yep. something of the sort. Did you yep. teach? Or Yes, I did. I, in fact, I still, uh, I, I, for, for 40 years, I've been a writer of educational materials for children. So I have both ends of the aging spectrum that I'm interested ah. in. So I still do that. But I also, yes, I taught uh, English at Rutgers University. I have a master's in English. And, um, but I always also taught journaling and uh, expressive writing as a therapeutic tool. Um, so, yeah, language is very important to me. Yeah. And, and I've also seen on your, on your uh, website that you 
still teach those sorts of courses and I gather to people who are older. Yes, to people who are all, well, all ages, but yes, people who are older. And here's the fascinating thing. The, as I said, the older we get, the more different we are from one another. Also, the more stories we accrue, the more things we have to say, the more tales we have to tell. And believe it or not, many of us older adults may be under the impression that nobody wants to hear our stories. And, and people may have acted toward us as if they don't want to hear our stories. But you know what I'm finding? I'm finding that young people really do want to hear older people's stories. So I teach how to keep a journal. I teach how to uh, write your memoirs. A lot of older adults are concerned about handing down a legacy, the family stories, their own experiences to share with their children and their grandchildren. That could be a great gift to children and grandchildren. Also something called an ethical will. An ethical will is not a formal a legal document, but basically it's a document that, um, that can describe the values the lessons that you learn and the values that you want to hand down to future generations, which could be an incredible gift to uh, to younger people. Um, you know, I, I think there, all of us when we're young, life doesn't change in certain ways. All of us when we're young, we want to know what are the tricks of the trade? How do we get through life well? And when an older person says, you know, don't sweat the small stuff, we may not believe it when we're young, but if we have someone who has said that to us and we hold on to that, we may find that as we get into our 40s, 50s, and 60s, yeah, you're right. Don't sweat the small stuff. So that's what an ethical will can do. So I'm, and by the way, there are health benefits in expressive writing. Expressive writing is when you write your thoughts and feelings about something. And there are over a thousand studies at this point. The science started around 1988, but there, there are about over a thousand studies that talk about the health benefits of doing this kind of writing. Some of them are just uh, include, you can lower your blood pressure, you can boost your immunity, um, you can regulate your heart rhythms, you can improve your focus and concentration, you can improve your relationships to others, you can boost your memory. These are just some of the few really important main benefits of expressive writing. And that's strictly for expressive writing or any kind of writing or how, how do the benefits flow? Well, the benefits, uh, the reason why it's for expressive writing is because you're writing down your emotions too. If I were just to make a list of, you know, a list of food that I want to buy at the store, that's not going to do it for me in the same way as writing about my favorite food and my first memory of tasting that favorite food. What it does is it actually physiologically, it, it, um, it initiates what's called the relaxation response in the body. Same thing that, that can be done with yoga, meditation, listening to good music, being with people you love. It, it helps to release uh, and reduce the stress hormones that flood in your brain and throughout your body. And it can help relieve the wear and tear that stress, ongoing stress can cause in your uh, circulatory system, in your digestive system. So it's the emotional aspect of it that really helps to relieve the stress. It's not just all in your head. It's not just the cerebral, dear diary, today I took a walk. Well, okay, you took a walk, but how'd you feel about that walk? What did you see on that walk that was important to you? That's the kind of writing I'm talking about. I, as, as somebody who's been a writer all my life, I, I have always found that when I'm confused about something, uh, when I've got three or four currents of thoughts swirling around, it helps me to sit down and write them out. And sometimes I resolve the problem just in the writing itself. Absolutely. So I guess that's some of what you're talking about. That's absolutely what I'm talking about. In fact, when I teach journaling, 
I, t I give people different techniques uh, of ways in which they can analyze and, and work through what they're going through. For example, you can have, you can do something in your, in your journal called a dialogue. You, if you're having a problem with a particular person, pretend you're writing a script of a conversation you're going to have with that person, that difficult conversation mm. you want to have. And, and write it as if you're writing a play, me and, you know, person, me, person, and see the kind of dialogue that happens. It's a, a journal could be a good place to rehearse those kinds of conversations. Or you can write an unsent letter, a letter that to another person uh, that you may no longer even have access to, maybe a parent who has died, to just to um, resolve certain issues and see what comes out of that. So there are different techniques, ways in which you can work through your situations. And again, what you're talking about, Don, is actually what is going to reduce people's stress when they do it. You also teach a, a workshop that I was very intrigued by that is, you call personal myth making. Mm -hmm. Can you please tell me, uh, is, are we all going to be superheroes by the time we finish <laughs> that course? <laughs> well, you know what? We're all heroes anyway. Whether or not we're super is, uh, is another case. But um, we are all heroes in our own lives. And if we realize that, that many of the things that we do, many of the decisions we make can be traced way back to when we first learned the values that we follow. When you think about it, many of us heard fairy tales when we were growing up and myths and religious stories, and that helped to, um, to instill in us certain values like honesty or persistence or whatever. So personal myth-making, you are the hero or heroine, whatever, of your life, and you kind of analyze your life's journey in symbolic terms. Now, what's important about writing about it symbolically is it helps you to really think what your life is like. So, for example, um, I can, if I wanted to write, let's say, about my years in graduate school, and they were rough years, they were really hard, you know, it, it required me to do a lot of hard work. Well, I might describe it as climbing a mountain. Now, I've never climbed Mount Everest, and so I, but I could only imagine how hard that might be. But if I, if I write about my um, experience in symbolic terms, and then I want to share that story with others. Well, they may never have climbed Mount Everest either, but maybe they went through a painful divorce or they suffered a debilitating illness. That's their mountain. So we can use these symbolic uh, images to communicate with one another how we have uh, understood our own lives. I encourage people when I teach personal myth-making to take a fairy tale that they never liked and rewrite it, revise it in a way they would like it. Surprisingly, the most common fairy tale that women like to revise is Cinderella. I'm not and surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and the most common fairy tale that men like to revise is Jack and the Beanstalk. Oh. The whole idea of work and trading beans and killing the giant and all of that. So, um, so we find that these stories that we hear as children sometimes don't fit our own reality. So we like so we can revise them in a way that fits our reality. But then there are ways you can make up a fairy tale entirely of your own, and that can be um, very rewarding because it can give you insights to your life. I I ask my students sometimes to draw a map of their lives, a treasure map. Where is your treasure? What is your treasure? What are you looking for? Where do you think it is? Is it buried under a mountain in a cave? Is it buried in a forest under a tree? Is it at the bottom of a river? And in your life, what rivers have you crossed? What bridges have you crossed? Have you met trolls along the way that kept you from going <laughs> over that bridge? So you get the idea. When, they, when yeah. 
think about it symbolically, it could be really quite amazing. That's great. So you've really, you've really combined, combined your first career and your second career. Yes. Together. Yes, I, yes, I have. Exactly. How, how did you get into gerontology in the first place? What, what inspired you to do that? Well, experience, actually. I was in my 40s and 50s when I was a long-term caregiver for both my parents. And it was a real struggle for them and for me to get them person-centered care, to get them treatment that respected their autonomy, that respected their dignity. It was like a nonstop battle. And it just floored me how older adults were treated are treated in this culture. And that just made me say, boy, do we have to change people's minds about aging. So I went back to graduate school when I was um, in my fifties and after both my parents died and uh, you know, studied gerontology just to find out what is it about aging that we get so wrong that we really need to get right if we're gonna make any progress. In, in our culture. And we're beginning to, you know, I think there's a tipping point. A beginning, we're beginning to be more aware of ageism as a, a, a very powerful form of discrimination, just like we're more aware of racism and sexism and homophobia. Well, ageism, ageism is the one we're all vulnerable to. It's the one we're all going to experience. And so if we don't deal with it now, our kids and our grandkids are going to have to deal with it. So we might as well be dealing with it now. So that's what made me go back to school. Okay. And one other thing that, that, fascinates me that you have talked about is intergenerational communication. And mm-hmm. y- y- you speak about that as if it were not such a great idea to segregate old people from everybody else. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, there are many older adults who personally want to be segregated. They've had enough of the treatment that they've received. And I can understand people who want to move into these 55 plus communities um, for their, you know, for their later years, I, I'm not judging them for that, but many older adults still want to really be in in communication and in relationship with young people. In our society today, we're so mobile that a lot of little kids don't have access to their grandparents. They live far away, or for various reasons, don't have regular contact with a positive older adult image. And so we are very ghettoized, and a lot of older people don't have access to young people. Um, or they self-marginalize, they think, oh, you know, no young kid wants to be around me kind of thing. So I'm very pro-intergenerational communication because it's a, it's a two-way learning experience. Uh, I, I, as you say, I'm a gerontologist, um, and I started in my 50s being a gerontologist, but I'm fascinated by young people in their 20s who are in college now majoring in gerontology. Why are they fascinated? What is it about hmm. them? And, and about old people at their age that makes them want to study us and study aging. And so whenever I meet somebody young who wants to be a gerontologist, I always ask, why are you in this? Invariably, I've never gotten an exception to this rule. They always say to me, uh, I have a really good relationship with my grandparent. Or there was a next door neighbor, an elderly man who was really good to me. and Or I have an aunt or an uncle or a godparent that took care of me or whatever. So they had a positive role model of aging at an early age. So they don't have that baggage built in that most of us get if we don't have that contact. By the way, ageism can be instilled in a child as early as three years old. That's when it can start. They absorb it from their parents. If they're hearing their parents talk to each other about how they see their own parents, or uh, they may have, you know, their the little kids' parents may have ageist views of their own. They're absorbing that. In in um, 
in some schools, they have this, what I think is a very a horrendous tradition of celebrating the hundredth day of school. And then, and that celebration is dress as a 100 year old person day. That's what they mm. celebrate the hundredth day of school. So the little kids are coming to school, with gray hair, wigs and walkers and wrinkles drawn on their faces. And those of us who are anti-ageism advocates are saying, please stop this. I mean, even though, yes, older people, many of them use walkers and we have gray hair and we have wrinkles, that should not be the way that children mainly perceive age. What other schools have done in in contrast is to do put 100 pennies in a jar. Every day of school, put a penny in a jar. And at the end of 100 days, here's how much 100 pennies look like. So we're accruing things, we're building, it's a cumulative effect. And that gives children a different message about age. We are accumulating, yes, as some parts of our bodies may be deteriorating, but we're also gaining things the longer we live. So so intergenerational uh, activities are very important. Imagine older people, if we had a major push in this country, to, in, to um, encourage older people to all volunteer in the schools or wherever to be reading buddies to children. Imagine the, the kids getting that exposure to a positive older person uh, at, at, at a young age. Now, there are many programs that are doing this, which is good, but I think we need a national program to do this. We need to just get the, the generations together in a big way so that we can stop this inculcating of ages in, into little kids as early as three years old. Have you seen uh, smaller projects that, that do bring the ages together? Anything that works well? Yeah. I mean, AARP has had the something called the Experience Corps, where older adults go into the public schools and help kids with their reading. Right. There, um, uh, there are, uh, I think it was... I think maybe the first one was in Washington state. There was a preschool. There is a preschool that's attached to a retirement community home. So ah. that kids, preschool kids have a certain hour or two a day where they are brought into the retirement community or vice versa. And they interact, they do some kind of project together with the older adults um, in Scandinavia, especially uh, and in uh, uh, the Netherlands it's, it's become more popular to have college age students uh, actually have rooms, free room and board in retirement communities where they then um, commit to volunteering in that community while they're going to college. So all of those kinds of programs are, are wonderful. I mean, that's that's the way we can get this mutual understanding and and also encourage kids to not be afraid of getting older. You know, if they see that the older adults they're with have you know, really cool senses of humor or quirky ways of looking at life, they will grow up with that appreciation. They won't be afraid to say, to think, you know, gee, I, I don't want to have a brain, an old person's brain. Look at the brain of the person that's been my reading buddy. I want to have that kind of brain when I get older. So that's what these kinds of programs that, do. That would be great. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you to answer the question I forgot to ask. Okay. <laughs> what is it that you really wanted to talk about that I didn't give you an opportunity to, to speak about. I think you've, you've done a great job, but I, I, I guess what I want to do is just reiterate that when I give my workshops, my mission is to change people's minds about aging. That's the mission. Change our minds about aging. Make, make aging a realistic concept in people's minds. I'm not Pollyanna-ish about it. Yes, there are some real negatives to getting older. Um, I'd like to have the body I had when I was 30 years old. But I wouldn't want to have the brain I had when I was 30 years old. 
So I, one of the things I, I, I can be a little more specific about, if you let me, is to talk about what the older brain can do that the younger brain can't do as well. So here's some of the assets of the older brain. And as I said before, we can use both our hemispheres simultaneously better uh, uh, the older we get. And the reason for that is because when we're born, you know, we have a left and right hemisphere and they don't actually touch except in the middle that connect a, a bridge of tissue called the corpus callosum connects those two. And it's very thin when we're born, but as we get older, it gets thicker and thicker until it becomes about 200 to 250 million nerve fibers. And it matures when we're in our fifties. That's ah. when it gets to be the biggest. So once we get into our 50s, our brain goes from what what Gene Cohen, a, a very famous gerontologist, used to say, goes from two-wheel drive to all-wheel drive. <laughs> our brains kick in, and we are able to solve problems more um, effectively. We get to see the gist of things quicker. We can see the forest, whereas when we're younger, we pay a lot of attention to the trees. Think of when you first learned to drive. I don't know about you, but when I first learned to drive, I was driving with my eyes looking right over the hood. I wasn't looking at the road straight ahead. The older we get, we look and in the distance and we can just guide our cars right to it. Um, I heard a really good um, description of the difference between a young brain and an older brain. Uh, a young person says, when I was young, I could, when I'm, uh, as a young person, I can push a real heavy object with one arm up a mountain. I'm really good at that. When I got older, I needed two hands to push that object up the mountain. But you know what? I can steer it better. That's uh -huh. the difference between the old brain and the younger brain. That's younger good. brain is force. Older brain is subtlety uh, and, and ingenuity. We uh, Another thing we can do is we know better and more often and faster which piece of information is important, relevant, and which is irrelevant when we're doing a task. So we know the shortcuts. Oh, you can skip that, that step. Go right to this step. Here's how you do it. So we have we have developed the shortcuts. We know the shortcuts. Um, we also have better long-term memories. You would think that a young person would have a better long-term memory because they don't have that much to remember. But the older we get, the more connections we can form in our brain. People tend to think that you're born with a certain number of brain cells, and as we get older, they just die off. Totally wrong. If you keep your brain healthy, you can keep growing brain cells until you die. And if you keep those brain cells challenged, that's what connects them and, and makes this, this super highway network. And so we older adults have better long-term memories because we have many more highways to get to any piece of information that we want. It may take us longer to get there, but we get there faster. Uh, we get there better. We may get there slower, but we get there better. The way I like to describe an old brain versus a young brain, let's say a young brain is like a 35-year-old healthy young brain. It's like uh, you have a library in your head of 100,000 books, and you ask a young person, go find me War and Peace, or go find me Huckleberry Finn. All right, they go right to the shelf. Here you are. Here's the book. You have an older, healthy, the clue is healthy, 75-year-old brain, and instead of having 100,000 books, you have 100 million books in your head. And you say, go find me War and Peace. Go find me Huckleberry Finn. Well, it's going to take longer to get that book because there's so many more shelves to go through. Oh, I think I put it here. No, it's in a box in the basement, I think. And then you finally get to the book. But here's what the older brain can do that the younger brain isn't that good at. If you like War and Peace, I got 20 other books I can recommend to you. That you would <laughs> Great. Like. Good and, analogy. I like that. <laughs> and also, chances are, the longer you live, the more likely it is that you have read War and Peace and it's part of your library. You may not have read it yet when you're in your 20s and 30s. So again, 
there are some real benefits to having an older brain. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to explain uh, some of that. No, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I'm going to wrap up because I think we've, we've run out of time, but okay. Jeanette, thank you. This has been very enjoyable and informative. Thank you, Doc. I appreciate you being with us today. Thank and you, you can learn more about Jeanette Liardi by visiting her website, which is JeanetteLiardi.com. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The End Game, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction, wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The End Game.